0: Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we talk about one of the fastest rising hobbies, baking bread. Now a lot of people turn to baking when they're spending more time indoors with quarantines and lockdowns. But what can scientists learn by studying different types of sourdough starters from across the world? Plus finding ways to make bread more enjoyable for people with celiac disease and edible for those who have allergens. How scientists can tackle allergens in key foods like peanut and wheat. Now, a lot of us have spent a lot more time in our homes discovering new hobbies that we otherwise had left on the wayside. For many people, this was cooking. And when you're trapped inside your home with not much else to do, a lot of people took to baking. Of course, the common element in the Western world to bake is bread, this fundamental thing that people have eaten for millennia, well, all of a sudden became an area of intense specialisation as people honed their crafts, developing their own sourdoughs or other types of bread and having their own backing starters to act as the foundation for their breads. And if you've ever baked before, either before or after this global pandemic, well, you might have known that having a starter can be a lot of work. A bit like a child, you have to top it up, you have to feed it, you have to mix it. There's a lot of maintenance steps involved. So people can be a bit possessive of these sourdough starters. And they can, like parents with their children or pets, say how theirs has some certain qualities or certain backings or procedures that they use to help make theirs the best possible starter or lead to the best possible bread. Now, inspired by this sudden rise in geographic spread, worldwide phenomena in fact, of baking, researchers from North Carolina State University and Tufts University undertook a global study of bread. A global study of sourdough starters. Over 500 across four different continents to try and figure out if any of these starters or techniques had something in common and to understand what separates a good bread and a good rise from a bad one. The idea here is that maybe you could understand not just what makes the sourdoughs so special, but also hopefully give bakers some special tips about things that might change or influence the quality of the bread that they produced. So where did these bread come from? Well. Researchers like Aaron McKinney, who's an assistant professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State University, worked together with researchers like Benjamin Wolfe, associate professor at Tufts University, and a whole bunch of assistant researchers, lead authors on the paper like Elizabeth Landis and Angela Olivero, to collect over 500 samples of sourdough starters from across the world. Now, this includes starters from United States and Europe as the predominant areas that they received samples from, but some people sent in samples from Australia, from New Zealand and Thailand. Now, from these 500 samples, they took DNA sequences of them all. And based on that, the researchers then selected 40 specific starters as being representative of the diversity that they saw across the 500 submissions. By that, you know, when you have a yeast starter you have to remember that these are a microbiological community an ecosystem that exists inside the bread when people say a sourdough starter or any type of bread starter what they are talking about on a microbiological sense is an ecosystem that has been honed crafted and created in their own environment and there's a number of things that go into it but for the most part there should be some genetic similarities between them and that's how the researchers sort of grouped them These 500 different samples to about 40. Uh, And on those 40, they could then take detailed assessments, which consisted of culturing them and then assessing them in three ways. The first was to take these starters to an expert panel of what they call sensory professionals. Now, a sensory professional's job is to assess aroma profile on an actual professional basis. Now, you may think you have a good nose, but these people are trained in certain ways of assessing things, and they're used in food sciences all the time to improve the quality of products or assess them. So, they needed to assess the aroma profile of these 40 different samples with the help of some super sniffer professionals. They also needed a chemical analysis of the compounds that are released by each starter. Now, the qualitative assessment by a super smeller or super sniffer is one thing, but what they're actually smelling and reacting to is these volatile organic compounds that are actually being given off by the yeast starter or anything really. So, obviously, you need to chemically study that makeup of those chemicals that are being released off gassed. This allowed the scientists to determine the structure of the aromatic compounds, as well as what relative amounts of each compound was being released. Think about it in two ways. You get the qualitative assessment of the smell and the aroma profile from the super sniffers, and then you get the actual chemical breakdown of that smell from the chemical analysis. Now, the last criteria that they measured, of course, was one very important for bakers, and that's how quickly each of those starter doughs rose. Now, these are all important criteria for making bread. What it smells like, what's in it, and how quickly it rises. But what they ended up finding was a lot of conventional wisdom that surrounds making sourdough wasn't quite lining up with the scientific facts. Immediately, Researchers hit on something that was a bit obvious, but wasn't really thought of much in the baking community, and that is that geography doesn't really matter for the breads. And what what they mean by that, as Elizabeth Landard points out, is we found that where the baker lives was not an important factor in the microbiology of sourdough starters. In other words, in a global world, even though we might be in our homes more, well, in a global world, the similarities um, in a microbiological sense across these sourdough starters didn't really respect geographic borders. You could have a lot of similar breads or starters from very, very geographically distant locations, which means that, well, that's there's no regionalization effect, which might offend people who believe that they have some regional specific types of bread, like, say, San Francisco. Now, what are the main factors then that help drive the differences or the different aromas or different results in your sourdough. Now, there were tremendous variation between the microbiological ecosystems in each of those sourdough, but there wasn't a single standout trait or a single standout variable that led to that huge variation. Instead, as Angela Oliviero points out, who researches at University of Colorado Boulder, what we found instead was lots of variables had small effects that when added together, could make a big difference. We're talking about things like how old the sourdough starter is, how often it's fed, and where people store it in their homes, and so on. So that means that what is making your bread special, or your microbiological community that you're growing special, is not one super thing, some super secret trick that you do for your recipe. But it's probably a combination of lots of different factors that you might be aware of and some that you aren't at all. Another big area of surprise for the research was that around 30% of the samples contained acetic acid bacteria. Now, acetic acid bacteria are called that because they actually produce this acid, acetic acid, as part of their life cycle. But most of the literature As such as it is for bread cultures and sourdough, focuses on yeast and lactic acid bacteria because no one had really thought that acetic acid would be that commonly used or even that present in a lot of the sourdough. Now, that's a little bit surprising because a lot of bakers often talk about acetic acid, but that's bakers talking, not scientists studying bakers talking. So there's a bit of a mismatch between them that has now been addressed because actually it's a pretty common phenomenon. Now, the biggest ingredient and most important ingredient in all these research is, of course, the yeast itself. So what yeast was the most common in this large survey? Well, around 70% of those starters contained Saccharomyces cerevisiae, or baker's yeast. On the other hand, you wouldn't be surprised that some, around 30% of sourdough starters, didn't include this baker's yeast, that means that was a yeast formed through a different method and there are plenty of ways to do that so whilst most sourdough starters only really contained one type of yeast in the 500 samples they found 70 different types of yeast across all of that study and that means even though most people are going to the shops and buying some baker's yeast to use as the basis for their initial starter a lot of people aren't and some people are ending up with even more unusual yeast developing and that means that the potential variety of just in something simple as baking bread and the type of yeast that you can end up in these microbiological systems, ecosystems, and thriving and flying and being consumed, well, it can be incredibly varied. The, the variety that you can end up with is tremendous. Now, a lot of people only use baker's yeast, but there's a lot more out there that can be used and has been that might be flying under the radar. So why do we care about bread? Aside from the fact that it's now from some of us A large time-sinking hobby well microbes in bread are an easy way for us to study and understand the important role that they have in shaping a microbiological system or the overall microbiome around you and your home so by studying bread we're actually getting an insight to this microbiological system that we are a part of culturing this bacteria in the bread and then obviously consuming it as well and interacting with these microbes This is some interesting research published in the journal eLife, and it really gets to the question about a lot of our new hobby, baking bread, and how diverse and different the approaches can be, even though we might not think so. if you like bread, chances are you're probably not gluten intolerant, but many people are. People who have celiac disease can't handle the gluten inside bread, and that can lead to some pretty unfortunate side effects for them, so they tend to avoid gluten. Now, there's also other food allergies like peanuts, and in general, there's a group of around 8, or the Big 8, as identified by the United States Department of Agriculture, that cause up to 90% of food allergies. Among these are pretty much wheat and peanuts as leading contributors. Now, the problem is, wheat and peanuts are powerhouse foods. They're not easy to avoid, and often, you don't want to. Aside from the taste, wheat is a great source of energy. It's got fibre, it's got vitamins. Peanuts are a pretty good form of protein, good fats, vitamins, and minerals, So yes, you can avoid the food, but sometimes you may not want to, you might like sourdough for example, or you might not be able to effectively because it's a good part of a healthy diet that you would otherwise have to be substituting in some other way that might be more expensive or harder to get. So people with food allergies try hard to avoid them, but the worst thing is that sometimes you can have an accidental exposure to an allergen. This can lead to hospitalisation, but in case of peanut allergies, but for other people, it can just lead to an uncomfortable life when you're never quite sure if you've ate something that will make you feel a bit off. Now, that's what researchers from the Crop Science Society of America, like Sachin Rustik, are trying to investigate. They presented these at the annual meeting of the Crop Science of America. So Ruski and his colleagues are trying to use modern gene editing techniques and biology to breed new species of both peanuts and wheat that have less allergenic particles in them. Ideally, so that you could have a peanut that doesn't lead to an allergic response, or wheat that doesn't lead to an allergic response, someone would say celiac disease. The problem is, if that's your goal, it's not easy to make a pathway forward. Because, well, there's a lot of things that can cloud and get in the way. So let's take wheat for example. So researchers focus on a group of proteins called gluten. Now, gluten is incredibly important for bread. It makes the dough elastic. It contributes to the chewy texture of the bread. But it's actually one of the things that can cause the immune reaction in individuals, that like we talked about there, with celiac disease. It can also go the other way, where if you don't have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, where you can lead to basically flip side, not enough, and that can lead to problems where you reject gluten that doesn't have that in there. So Researchers have been trying to breed for a long time varieties of wheat that have lower gluten content. The problem is you, you still want gluten in some way and gluten itself as a protein is a lot more complicated than it appears. The information that's needed to make gluten is actually embedded inside the DNA of wheat cells but it's not a single protein. It's a group of many different proteins and the instructions to make gluten are scattered all the way across the genome so it's not actually easy because instruction cells need to make the individual gluten proteins are scattered in different genes so then you have to go and find all these different gluten genes distributed over a cell's dna so lots of different portions of the dna play a role in creating and modulating the gluten that ends up in the wheat and that makes it incredibly difficult for plant breeders because you are trying to juggle so many different areas and see, oh, if I specialize for this trait and not this trait, do I get something with low gluten levels? But it's a multi-factor equation that's really hard to balance. Now, with better genomic sequencing, sure, you can actually target this a lot better. And the major question would be, really, is it possible to really tackle such a large problem when there's so many genes at play? And the problem is, peanuts are pretty much A similar problem as well because peanuts contain 16 different proteins that can all be recognized as allergens and that's really quite difficult because whilst not all peanuts are equally energetic there's four proteins that trigger a severe response in more than half of peanut sensitive individuals so you don't need to go after all 16 but it's still a lot at best you want to go after four if not more So what are the researchers to do? How do you tackle such a complicated problem where the genes are distributed in many different places and there's many different proteins at play? So you can undertake a traditional breeding approach and that's been done for years. You basically try and breed a specific trait such as like high yield or pest resistance. And you can do that as well by trying to breed for low allergenic wheat and then try and find one that could actually be grown commercially to get the low energetic trait but then you've got to boost the other trait so it's actually a profitable strain to plant but technologies like crispr allow scientists to get a lot more detail and a lot more precise changes in a cell's dna than ever before so for example now this group of researchers can use crispr to target individual gluten genes in wheat of all those disparate places they can go right after it and now some new improvements in crispr because remember crispr itself is still a new technology It's been adapted and improved to enable researchers to target not just a single gene, but many genes at once. Now, if they can do this approach in wheat, it means they could apply the same technique to peanuts as well and any other food that has an allergic response. That is, identify all of the genes that are key allergenic properties and basically target those, target the proteins that are produced and try and remove them that way. It's a lot faster than, say, breeding for different traits and a lot more straightforward because you can actually control and eliminate key genes at a time, which is much more precise, especially in such a difficult problem. Now, finding a way to make wheat and peanuts, which are major sources of proteins for many people, especially in resource deprived conditions, if you can find a way to make those affordable and widely available without being allergenic, that is incredibly beneficial for a lot of people. So this is some interesting research about a new application of CRISPR to try and improve the way we target and reduce allergic response to key foods like wheat and peanuts. This work was presented at the American Society of Agronomy's annual meeting and in conjunction with the Crop Science Society of America. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Way. Studying sourdough starters from across the world, plus finding ways for people with allergies to enjoy wheat and peanuts without the allergic response.